Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 124, Weird Neighborhood Histories. Hi, I'm Jake. This weekend, your humble hosts are going to be busy at History Camp Boston. Instead of writing and recording a new episode, we're going to replay two stories about Boston's weird neighborhood history from our back catalog. We'll be sharing a story from Jamaica Plain about a politically motivated crime in the early 20th century that led to a series of running gunfights between the police and what the newspapers called desperados. Then we're going to move across town to Brighton, which, speaking of desperados, used to be the home to saloons, card games, and hard-drinking cowboys when it hosted New England's largest cattle market. But before we talk about weird neighborhood history, we need to say thank you to Erica, our latest Lewis Hayden supporter on Patreon. We love that podcasts are free to listen to, but that doesn't mean that they're free to produce. Our monthly expenses include our web hosting and security, online audio tools to clean up our recordings, and the service that hosts our podcast feed. Listeners like Erica can help us offset these costs, and there are special perks at the $2, $5, and $10 per month levels. If you want to help us out, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory, or go to hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. With that, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is a volume of memoir from Michael Patrick McDonald. All Souls tells the story of a young boy growing up in South Boston during the 1970s, portraying a tightly knit community against the backdrop of the busing crisis, Whitey Bulger's consolidation of power, and his own family's heartbreaks. Here's the flyleaf description. A breakaway bestseller since its first printing, All Souls takes us deep into Michael Patrick McDonald's Southie, the proudly insular neighborhood with the highest concentration of white poverty in America. The anti-busing riots of 1974 forever changed Southie, Boston's working-class Irish community, branding it as a violent, racist enclave. Michael Patrick McDonald grew up in Southie's old colony housing project. He describes the way this world within a world felt to the troubled yet keenly gifted observer he was even as a child. We were protected, as if the whole neighborhood was watching our backs for threats, watching for all the enemies we could never really define. But the threats... Poverty, drugs, a shadowy gangster world, were real. MacDonald lost four of his siblings to violence and poverty. All Souls is heartbreaking testimony to lives lost too early, and the story of how a place so filled with pain could still be the best place in the world. It's a glimpse into a Southie that has changed a lot, but perhaps not enough since 1974. MacDonald's book shows a continuing affection for that world while not shying away from its faults. He can express love for the people and experiences that made up his childhood while recognizing the poverty, violence, and racism that shaped the neighborhood that made him. We'll have a link to purchase the book in this week's show notes. Speaking of neighborhoods, for our upcoming event this week, we have a neighborhood-focused talk at the Copley Square branch of the Public Library about Copley Square. On March 27th at 6 p.m., Leslie Hum Cormier will be presenting about how to explore the history of Copley Square through its architecture. Dr. Cormier is an architectural historian who currently teaches at Boston Architectural College. Here's how the library describes the event. Copley Square is one of Boston's most architecturally significant and instantly recognizable public locations. The urban square is home to Trinity Church, the Boston Public Library, Old South Church, and the Hancock Tower, among other important landmarks. The square defines the city, 
as well as the evolution of American architecture and urban design, from colony toward the sophistication of global European squares, moving creatively from Beaux-Arts style to international style and modernism. Architectural historian Leslie Hum Cormier explores this contemporary place from its origins as an estuary to its vital significance as a stylistic link between old world style and new world design. The lecture will be held in the Commonwealth Salon on the first floor. It's free, but registration is required. We'll have a link to the event page in this week's show notes. We also have a bonus event this week. Nikki and I will be giving a brief talk at the main branch of the Boston Public Library on Friday, March 29th at 7.30 p.m. It's part of a program marking the 150th anniversary of the Grand Peace Jubilee, which was held in Copley Square in 1869. You can get more details about the Jubilee in episode 102, but in short, it was a giant musical extravaganza celebrating the end of the Civil War. The anniversary will feature some of the same music that was performed at the original, as interpreted by a brass band from the New England Conservatory of Music. Nikki and I will give the historic context, Boston's poet laureate Portia Eliawola will give a reading, and the keynote address will be delivered by Theodore C. Landsmark. Because the event's being held at the library after hours, advanced registration is required. You can go to associatesbpl.org slash pierce, that's P-I-E-R-C-E, or we'll have a link in this week's show notes. And now, it's time for this week's main topics. First up, we have a story that we originally called the Battle of Jamaica Plain. In 1908, a robbery in a bar in Jamaica Plain turned into a bloody battle, as a small group of radical anarchists engaged hundreds of Boston police officers in a series of running gunfights across the neighborhood. The shootouts and a bloody siege at Forest Hill Cemetery left a total of 10 wounded and 3 dead. Most of the suspects escaped only to be killed years later by British soldiers on the streets of London under the command of Winston Churchill himself. On Tuesday, July 21, 1908, Patrolman Butler of the Boston Police Department was walking his beat on Washington Street in Jamaica Plain at about 11 p.m. when a man named Frank Drake ran up to him, bleeding badly from a gunshot wound that had pierced his lung. He told Butler that there was a robbery in progress at the Winterson and McManus Saloon at 3171 Washington Street on the corner with Boylston Street. According to Butler's statement, I was standing at the corner of school in Washington Streets about 1055 and heard a revolver shot, followed by five others in rapid succession. I ran to the saloon and on the way heard six or seven other shots fired. Owner Thomas Winterson and bartender John Carty were serving drinks to the last five patrons when, according to the Boston Globe, just before closing, three unfamiliar men entered. As one jumped over the bar and threw the cash register to the floor, his two companions drew pistols and began firing. Winterson took bullets to the base of the skull and the left arm. Customer Patrick Doran was struck in the left side in the spinal column. A second customer, Frank Drake, was hit in the right lung. While one of the men picked up the money from the register, bartender Cardi escaped to the back room and called police station 13. With their take of $90, the three men ran into the street. After raising the alarm, Drake would die from his wound. Patrick Doran was listed in critical condition, and Thomas Winterson, with a bullet in the base of his skull, was said to be resting comfortably at home. As the robbers left the bar, they encountered Patrolman Butler, whose statement continues, When I reached the door of the saloon, I was about to enter when I saw three men firing revolvers, and one of them, the smallest of the three, turned on me and pointed his revolver at me. 
I dodged out of the door onto the sidewalk as he fired at me. I did not have my revolver out, and I got into a doorway in the next building to take it out, when at that moment the three men ran out of the saloon and across the street and into the lot where there are some old cellar walls. I fired at them. Someone cried out to me, Don't shoot these men. The men you want ran down Washington Street. That warning, which may have actually come from someone who was acting as a lookout for the robbers, threw Butler off the scent. Trying to catch up to the escaping gunman, he jumped onto a passing streetcar that was headed to the right down Washington Street towards Green Street. I got onto a passing car and rode as far as Green Street, but could not see the men. I got off the car and jumped into a carriage that was going in the opposite direction and was driven to the police signal box at the corner of Washington and School Streets and telephoned Lieutenant Bodenschatz about the shooting and asked him to send me help. In the meantime, while Butler was riding a streetcar in the wrong direction, Two witnesses chased the three men who he had shot at across the street and up Chauncey Place, now Chilcot Place, where they took a left and cut through the backyards to School Street, then down School Street to Washington, where they ran through Eggleston Square and disappeared down Columbus Avenue. I was told by a citizen that the men I had fired at were the right men, that a woman had told him that she had seen them running through Weld Ave and down Washington Street toward Roxbury. I telephoned Station 13 that fact, and Station 10 was notified. I went to the station as quickly as I could and looked after the wounded until the physicians and extra police arrived. Are you confused yet? Don't worry, we are too. We'll put a map showing the route the robbers took during that chase and the subsequent pursuits in the show notes this week. The city was already on edge when the violence escalated the next day. The Globe reported, at 7 o'clock on the evening of July 22nd, two of the Yegmen involved in the raid at the Winterston and McManus Saloon were in a running gun battle through the streets of Jamaica Plain. Wait a minute. Are you calling these guys the Eggmen? That's Y-E-G-G-M-E-N, not the Eggmen, as in the John Lennon lyric, I am the Eggman, they are the Eggmen. I am the walrus. Goo goo gajoob. From this point on, many of the news stories we looked at referred to the group of robbers as the Yegmen. It's used across multiple newspapers, so it must have been widely used slang at the time, but we weren't familiar with the term. Luckily, grammar bloggers Patricia O'Connor and Stuart Kellerman tracked down the origin of the term. They dug up a reference to a bank robber named John Yeag, who was active in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, with the first mention in print being at a bank industry conference in 1900. A report on bank robbers mentions $540 stolen from the Scandinavian American Bank in St. Paul, Minnesota, on August 9, 1899, by professional sneak thieves, was returned to the bank in an express package. When the money was returned, there was allegedly a note inside the package from John Yeagan Co., which said, Having been hounded by the detectives all over the country, we concluded that the wisest thing to do was to make restitution. O'Connor and Kellerman didn't quite take this tall tale at face value, saying, This story about fearful outlaws returning their loot sounds too good to be true. We suspect that Pinkerton's National Detective Agency, 
which handled security for the American Bankers Association, may have embellished it. However, Pinkerton's is probably responsible for popularizing the use of the term yeg and yegman for a burglar or a bank robber, especially one who roams the country and cracks safes with explosives. In a September 15, 1901 interview with the New York Times, Robert Pinkerton, who ran the detective agency's New York office, said, This class of men have become very expert in the use of explosives. The stuff for blowing open saves is carried from place to place in rubber bottles or hot water bags. And if they are discovered by the police, the Yeggs claim that they are lung protectors, Pinkerton added. The Pinkerton agency certainly had good PR, and before long, Yeggmen was a common term. As seen in the Boston Globe when they called the suspects in this case Yeggmen, or just Yeggs. A passerby recognized two men walking down South Street outside Monument Square in Jamaica Plain just after 7 p.m. on July 22nd as the shooters who had fled the saloon the night before. He flagged down patrolman Edmund Inglis and pointed them out, and Inglis immediately began chasing them. The Globe reports on the chaotic scene that followed. In an exchange of shots at the corner of South and Child Streets, patrolman Edmund Inglis took a bullet to his left leg. Nearby. Mrs. Mary Fallon was shot through the right side of her face while walking to the store with her child. The men fled down Child Street. In a field at the corner of Child and Lee Streets, Patrick McGinn and Edward Whiteman were both shot in their legs. The fleeing Yeggs turned right on Lee Street and then left on Keys, now McBride, toward Washington Street. At the intersection of Washington and Keys Streets, Boston Elevated conductor Thomas Moore was shot while stepping off his streetcar suffering a broken leg. Here also, John Nolan, foreman of the Ross Twine factory, was shot in the right side, seriously injuring him. Again, if you're having trouble tracking this, we'll have a map in the show notes this week. The Globe continues, From there, the Desperados continued to Forest Hills Street, where they turned and ran for Forest Hills Cemetery. At the entrance to the cemetery, Herbert Knox, a watchman at the cemetery, was shot in the abdomen and later died at Emerson Hospital. So in the initial robbery, the group had shot three people, killing one of them. In this next chase, seven people were shot, including the cemetery security guard, who was killed, a woman walking to the store who was hit with a stray round, and the cop who was wounded. What reason did the outlaws have to shoot at two men standing in a field or a streetcar operator? The vague language in the news coverage makes the modern observer wonder how many of those who were injured were caught in the crossfire. How many were hit by bullets fired by the pursuing police? When word was relayed from Station 13 to police headquarters that the outlaws had been chased into Forest Hills Cemetery, reinforcements began pouring in from around the city. Streetcars and horse-drawn wagons brought upwards of 250 armed patrolmen to Jamaica Plain. By this time it was 8 p.m., and officials worried that it would be getting dark soon. Forest Hills is a very large cemetery encompassing about 225 acres, bounded by Morton Street, Canterbury Lane, and Walk Hill Street, with one side backing up into the neighborhood above Hyde Park Avenue. It was established in 1848 during the early days of the craze for garden cemeteries, which were meant as rural park-like settings in which to bury and mourn the dead, rather than interring them in a local churchyard. Across the river in Cambridge, Mount Auburn had been the first garden cemetery in 1831, and Roxbury followed suit a few years later. 
As a garden cemetery, there were ponds, hills and valleys, and groves of trees, not to mention headstones, all of which would provide excellent cover for a group of desperate criminals to open fire from in the gathering darkness. Instead of sending officers into what might very well have been an ambush, commanders surrounded the park with cops and sent automobiles with mounted searchlights into the neighboring streets. If the gunmen were still in the park, the police wanted to make sure they'd be trapped there until morning. They would soon get their confirmation, as the Boston Globe reported. At 8.15 that night, three patrolmen were stationed on Walk Hill Street on the south side of the cemetery. One robber was seen approaching by the fence, and they drove him back with shots from their revolvers. An hour later, one of the men threatened to break out again, and again was driven back with shots. Patrolman Edward McMahon had been keeping watch on the west edge of the cemetery in the back of 80 Woodlawn Street. At 9.20 p.m., he heard a noise at the cemetery fence, and when he came out into the light to investigate, he fell with a gunshot wound to the abdomen. His fellow officers returned fire in the direction of the shots, but with no apparent effect. The rest of the night was quiet, as the police waited for daylight before closing in on the Yegman. Before dawn on July 23rd, a force of about 200 police officers began combing slowly and methodically through the cemetery, trying to flush out the bandits. They moved in through the main gate and to the left, where they saw at least one man run over a hill and into a dry gully. As the officers pursued him, the man turned, fired his pistol at them, quickly reloaded, and fired a second magazine at them before taking cover behind a fir tree. The police responded with a protracted barrage that only slowed when it became clear that no more shots were coming from the suspect. A superintendent, a chief inspector, and one patrolman all ran forward and checked behind the tree. The suspect was sitting upright with his back against the tree. The next day's globe describes what unfolded then. Chief Watts grasped him about the throat while Patrolman O'Sullivan wrenched the revolver from the unresisting fingers. He's dead, the chief said, but the announcement made no impression upon the police. The force of armed men surged down the gully, frenzied with rage, crying, Kill him! Finish him up! Make an end to him! Get back! Get back! shouted Superintendent Pierce and Chief Watts, but the patrolman paid no attention to the command. They were for seizing the body and doing it violence. Inspectors Douglas and Wolfe jumped beside the superintendent and the chief inspector and joined them in resisting the frantic policemen. Chief Watts and the others struck the patrolmen, knocked them down, and fought them off for several minutes until the excited men regained their senses and dropped back. In a story on August 1, 1908, the Globe reports on a statement by Commissioner O'Meara in response to criticism of the police handling of the siege in the cemetery. It noted that there were 238 policemen of all ranks on duty at Forest Hill Cemetery, not the 600 claimed by some. 149 men stood guard, while 89 entered the cemetery. Of those, it was determined that 67 fired 208 shots. After pointing out that the two missing fugitives could have left the cemetery before the police cordon was in place, the commissioner stated, 
I have studied the events of the night with greater interest, perhaps, than any other man can have, and I do not see wherein the plan could have been improved, even if the work were to be done again. Witnesses placed the dead man at the scene of the robbery in the saloon, as well as the first chase and shootout. He was soon identified as Edmund Gutman, an immigrant from Latvia. Police at first thought that they had killed the suspect, then became convinced that he had killed himself. However, evidence would later come to light that one of the other robbers had shot and killed Gutman after Gutman said he couldn't keep up with the group. A friend and fellow Latvian later identified as Pulka Murovitz killed him with a single shot so there would be no chance he could talk to investigators. The 208 rounds fired by the police had hit nothing. As the smoke cleared and the police got their tempers in check, it became clear that clues left at the scene pointed toward a mystery woman who might be their only link to the remaining shooters. Meanwhile, as things were beginning to settle down in the cemetery, police arrested a streetcar conductor named Hugh McDougall as he walked down Morton Street just outside the cemetery fence. A search found that he was carrying a revolver, but witnesses on the scene immediately attested that he hadn't been involved in the shooting. Nevertheless, he was arrested and processed, then released on bond the next day. At about the same time, a police officer named Buckley was patrolling the edge of Arnold Arboretum near South Street in the Arbor Way. He saw a suspicious man in the park and called out to him, but the man began running away from tree to tree. Buckley fired at him but missed, at which point he would later claim that the man brandished a revolver and shouted with a comical Italian accent, I'll get a you yet, before disappearing into the Arboretum. While investigating this incident, police got a report from two brothers who lived on nearby Jamaica Street. They had hung their jackets over chairs in their apartment kitchen and gone out for a while. When they came back, their jackets were gone, replaced by two coats that didn't belong to them, one of which was soaked in blood. While the police had been fighting over Gutman's body near the Morton Street side of the cemetery, they left the Canterbury Street side unguarded. The other two outlaws simply climbed over the fence went down Canterbury to walk Hill Street, then turned right onto Hyde Park Avenue before crossing the railroad tracks and slipping into Arnold Arboretum, where they encountered Patrolman Buckley. With Buckley's report of an encounter with an Italian man waving a gun, Italian-Americans all around the city were identified as possible suspects. Officers at South Station arrested Giuseppe Di Vicio because they thought he matched the description of a suspect and because he ran when they chased him. Francesco Sperduto and Seppa Pascal had been arrested in Dedham the day before on unrelated charges, but were found to match descriptions of the escaped robbers. Despite sparse evidence, Sperduto, DeVicio, and Hugh McDougall would all stand trial for the murder of the night watchman at Forest Hills. All were acquitted after a key witness, when pressed on his identification of Sperduto, testified that he wouldn't want to swear to it because they, meaning immigrants, all look so much alike. Despite the early focus on swarthy Italians, sandy-haired Latvian immigrants soon became the suspects of the investigation. Edmund Gutman had been the foreman for a crew of gypsy moth exterminators working in the Middlesex Fells. Shown a picture of the crew, witnesses picked out two other Latvian-American workers, Peter Plod and Andrew Jacobson, as the men who led the police on the second foot chase across Jamaica Plain. 
Sources within the Latvian community said that they were members of a violent anarchist cell, of which Gutman had been the leader. Another member of the cell, Peter Swear, was said to have acted as a lookout on the night of the holdup in the bar, and might have given the warning that allowed the other three to escape Patrolman Butler during the first chase. We've discussed anarchism on the show before, because Sacco and Vanzetti were proponents of the philosophy, and because some people blamed anarchist terrorists for the Great Molasses Flood, though that turned out to just be bad engineering. In short, anarchists believe in a stateless society, or at least in a society in which all forms of hierarchy are leveled. As the old monarchies of Europe tottered on the edge of collapse, and labor unions and leftist organizations became more powerful around the world, anarchism drew more adherence. At the same time, anarchists began preaching the power of the propaganda of the deed, using violent actions to inspire more people to join the cause. Around the world, bombings and attacks on monarchs and nobles were attributed to anarchists. In the U.S., President McKinley was assassinated by anarchists in 1901, and bombings and other attacks would continue through the 1920s. One form of propaganda by the deed was known as expropriation, robbery and burglary carried out in resistance to the very concept of private property. Apparently, our band of radicals was trying to resist the private property rights of the Winterston and McManus Saloon by expropriating all the money that was inside it. Soon, Police learned that Peter Plod had returned to Latvia, and they assumed that Andrew Jakobsen and Peter Swear had left the country as well. Dozens of Latvian Americans who had been rounded up for questioning were freed. For the investigation to continue, the cops had to focus on the clues found with Gutman's body in Forest Hills Cemetery. One was a lady's handkerchief, embroidered with the initials L.M., the other was a blood-stained letter, in what everyone at first assumed was Gutman's own handwriting. It was addressed to a Miss L. Morin, in care of a Mrs. Rosenwald, at an address near where the saloon had been held up. The Rosenwalds denied knowing Miss Morin, but other sources soon filled in the details. On July 26th, the Globe reported, Leontine Martin to whom the final note was addressed, was traced to 43 Union Avenue in Jamaica Plain. It was learned that Morin, 20 years old, was married, but living under her maiden name since her husband had gone west seeking employment. Upon locating her residence, the police went to 43 Union Avenue, searched the premises, and took an unnamed couple into custody. They were questioned at Station 13 and held for further interviews. Morin was not the woman found. Saying that Morin's husband had gone west in search of work may have been a euphemistic way to refer to a divorce or separation that society would have disapproved of at that time. The Globe describes the close relationship that developed between Peter Plod, the actual letter writer, and Leontine Morin. Sometime after arriving in the U.S., the Plods moved into 53 Jamaica Street, opposite the home of Christopher Spruta, where the outlaws later left their blood-soaked coats. At the time, the Marin woman was with them. Miss Marin was known within the Latvian community to be very fond of Peter Plod. Eventually, the Plods and Miss Marin moved to 3302 Washington Street near Green Street. 
Claude took the job with the Middlesex Fells Reservation Gypsy Moth crew and became close to Gutman and aligned with his violent anarchist principles. Claude and Andrew Jakobsen, another Latvian Gypsy Moth crewman, began defrauding installment stores, buying furniture and clothing, and reselling it without first paying the full amount. In time, they came under pressure from agents of the sellers. Claude fled to Philadelphia, disappeared from sight, and Leontine Marin returned to her parents. When the heat died down, both Claude and Marin returned to Boston, where they allegedly fell back in with Gutman's anarchist cell not long before the saloon robbery. After missing her at 43 Union Ave and finding a new address abandoned, police staked out her parents' house in Lawrence and searched a friend's apartment on Ruggle Street in Roxbury. Finally, after almost three months had passed, the BPD tracked Leontine Marin and her sister to New York City that October. The young women were working as dressmakers. With the help of the NYPD, the Boston police interviewed both Morins at their home on 170th Street. Both women were interrogated at length before the Boston Police Department announced that they were no longer persons of interest in the case and that the investigation into them would be dropped. When the police decided to clear Miss Morin, their last lead went cold and the case slowly faded from the headlines and from memory. If you'd like to learn more about the showdown at Forest Hills, check out this week's show notes. But wait, the story isn't over yet. It's not? No. The case went cold for almost six years, but then Boston police got a tip from the local Latvian community that the answer to the riddle of the missing shooters could be found in London. In 1914, Inspector Thomas Lynch of the BPD was assigned to travel to merry old England to investigate. Upon Lynch's return, the February 7, 1914 edition of the Newport Mercury gives some indication of how far the story departed from what everyone thought had happened. Notorious Jamaica Plain bandits have all been killed. Tragic deaths, in keeping with their lives of bloodshed, have come to three Boston bandits, according to an official announcement by the Boston Police Department. Edmund Gutman was killed in the cemetery, the police say, by his companions, because he felt himself unable, on account of physical weakness, to keep up the fight against the law. Polka Muravitz was shot in London and Fritz Vars was burned to death when the police destroyed a house in which a number of anarchists of that city had taken refuge. That is the police story, which does not agree, however, with contemporary versions of the Battle of Forest Hills, which stated that Gutman was shot to death while fleeing from the cemetery. The British constabulary introduced Lynch to a London woman who had known two men named Fritz Vars and Pulka Muravitz. She told the inspector how Svars and Muravitz had bragged about evading the police in a chase and shootout somewhere in America. They hadn't told her where, but the details she provided matched the crime in Jamaica Plain exactly. Claude and Jacobson had been innocent all along, though perhaps Peter Swear, the lookout on the night of the robbery, was the same man as Fritz Svars. Unfortunately, Svars and Muravitz were dead. Muravitz, whose real name may have been George Gardstein, was from Poland, and Svars was Latvian. Both were anarchists, and both had been accused of terrorist activities in their home countries. And in January 1911, they were both killed in a shootout with police 
following one of the most notorious crimes in London history. In December of 1910, the gang of Latvian criminals and revolutionaries led by Murovitz began casing a jewelry store in a Jewish neighborhood in East London for what they thought would be their biggest expropriation ever. Their target was at 119 Houndsditch, and the gang rented two storefronts on the parallel street, numbers 9 and 11, in the exchange buildings. On the night of December 16th, they used pneumatic drills to cut through the store walls that separated the rented storefronts from the back of the jewelry store. There were three or four men manning the drills, including Murovitz and possibly Svars, and a few more acting as lookouts. At about 11 p.m., a neighbor got annoyed by the loud sound of a pneumatic drill in the middle of the night and flagged down a passing police officer. The officer knocked on the door at 11 Exchange and exchanged a few words with the man who opened the door, who spoke limited English. The short conversation was enough to raise the constable's suspicion, and he called for backup. Before long, there were seven officers assembled in the alleys around 11 Exchange Place, all of whom were armed with billy clubs, as was standard for the time. At about 11.30, Sergeant Bentley knocked on the door of number 11 again. More of it's answered, and when he went to get a fluent English speaker, Bentley walked inside, along with Sergeant Bryant and Constable Woodhams. When they were all inside, members of the gang opened fire with pistols, badly wounding Bentley, Bryant, and Woodhams. Bentley would die the next day, while Bryant and Woodhams would survive, but with permanent disabilities. The gang then ran out of the building, where more police officers moved in to arrest them. A Sergeant Tucker was immediately shot in the heart and killed, but Constable Choate managed to tackle Morovitz. Multiple members of the gang fired, hitting Choate at least 12 times. Choate was killed, but Morovitz was also wounded in the confusion. The gang carried him along, but the next day, Morovitz bled to death in his apartment. Later evidence would show that he had killed Edmund Gutman in Forest Hills Cemetery when Gutman couldn't keep up with Svars and him. Now he too had been killed by friendly fire. The doctor who had been attempting to treat him called the coroner, who in turn called in the police. This led to a chain reaction of events as police slowly unraveled leads on the case, identifying members of the gang and tracking down their hideouts. By New Year's Day 1911, the Metropolitan Police and London City Police had located the gang's hideout at 100 Sydney Street, not far from where the crime had taken place. On January 3rd, officers moved in. Just after midnight, they set up a perimeter around the block and began moving neighbors out of their homes to create a free fire zone. Soon, Svars and another member of the gang were alone on the block. At 7.30 in the morning, police knocked on the front door and began throwing stones at the windows to get the men's attention. As soon as they were awake, the Latvians began firing out the windows at the police, most of whom were only armed with revolvers. One sergeant was wounded, and the outgunned police force fell back under cover and began laying siege to the house. Scotland Yard called the Home Office, where Home Secretary Winston Churchill gave his permission to call in the military. A detachment of sharpshooters from the Scots Guard took up positions around the house at 10 a.m., where they were soon joined by the Home Secretary himself. A film crew from Pathé soon showed up to record the battle, making it one of the first breaking news events to be caught on film. The resulting newsreel footage and press photographs 
show Churchill's dour round face peeking from behind a wooden door, with police behind him holding shotguns and soldiers in front of him firing rifles. One account even says that a bullet went through his trademark top hat, but I would take that with a grain of salt. While he observed the fighting for hours, the only command Churchill gave was to the London Fire Brigade. At 12.30 p.m., it became apparent that 100 Sydney Street was on fire, and Churchill ordered the fire chief not to risk his men in trying to fight the fire while both sides were still shooting. Soon after the fire started, one of the conspirators stuck his head out of the window and was promptly shot in the face. Hours later, when the shooting had stopped and the fire was out, the body of the other shooter, Frank Svars, a.k.a. Peter Swear, was pulled from the rubble. The death of the last Jamaica Plain bandit had been personally directed by future World War II Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and the story would inspire two movies, Alfred Hitchcock's 1934 The Man Who Knew Too Much and the 1960 film The Siege of Sydney Street. Yet, somehow, the dramatic events in Jamaica Plain that led up to one of the most famous crimes in London history have mostly been forgotten. Next up, we're going to tell you about an era when the independent town of Brighton was home to all the elements of a Western movie. There were cattle drives, stockyards, saloons, and stampedes through the street. Drovers brought herds of cattle, sheep, and even turkeys from all over New England, and cattle buyers fed the growing appetite of Boston slaughterhouses. Before it was tamed, Unruly Brighton was our own little Wild West. What could be a more iconic vision of the Wild West than a cattle drive, perhaps as embodied by John Wayne in the 1948 film Red River? They're going to Missouri with 10,000 head. What you all to know what you're up against. We got a thousand miles to go. Ten miles a day will be good. Fifteen will be luck. That movie traces the heyday of cattle drives as large herds from Texas ranches were driven to railroads in Kansas and Missouri in the years following the Civil War. You might not realize that a generation earlier, cattle drives were already regular features of the Boston area economy, and they all wound up in one place, Brighton, our own little Wild West. When the Brighton stockyards reached their peak in the 1830s and 40s, the term cowboy hadn't really been coined yet. Cattle drives were known as droves, and instead of cowboys, the men who worked them were called drovers. We begin with an article by David C. Smith and Anne E. Bridges in a 1982 issue of the Journal of the Agricultural History Society, titled, The Brighton Market, Feeding 19th Century Boston. Droves in New England were relatively small, averaging approximately 200 per drive. Animals were branded or tagged in their ears. On the first day, a half dozen men with long whips moved the cattle out on the road. For the remainder of the drive, three men would be sufficient. Dogs were not often used, even with sheep. A drive from Franklin County, Maine to Brighton usually took about 14 days. Maine was a primary source during many of the market years for beef cattle, sheep, and especially working oxen, milk cows, and animals used for stores. Its place in the beef cattle trade went back a very long time. The first drive south to Boston came as early as 1645. John Mason, one of the first proprietors, 
immediately began importation of Danish cattle when he began settlement in 1631. Heavy importations occurred through 1633. By 1645, the surplus, some 100 head, were driven south over land and were sold in Boston. This was the beginning of the drover trade. Newspapers were filled with accounts of droves, and persons living in Maine thought passing cattle and sheep droves an item of everyday life. Ten to 15,000 cattle each year were sent to Brighton before the Civil War. Occasionally disasters occurred, but basically, droving was a routine affair, as cattle were rounded up, driven to the nearest marshalling yards, usually at Clinton in central Maine for the majority of years, some droves, especially of working oxen or young stock for stores, continued to travel overland until late in the century. A passage in an 1843 edition of the charmingly named Louisville magazine, The Dollar Farmer, a monthly publication of practical and scientific agriculture, describes the scene as drovers from Maine, Vermont, Western Massachusetts, and other cattle-raising regions converged on Brighton for the market held every Monday. During nearly the whole day of Monday of each week, the roads leading from Brighton to the neighboring towns are filled by little squads of cattle, sheep, and hogs, which are marched off to the place of execution, where they are dressed for the market, then transported to the city in wagons and placed in the butcher's stalls ready for sale. Even before the herds reached Brighton and the market was convened, drovers and buyers might meet in surrounding suburban communities and reach a deal, as seen in a report on the agriculture of Massachusetts, published in 1841. In times of a quick market, droves of cattle and sheep are often waylaid a days or more journey from the market, and sales are affected without their reaching Brighton. Large numbers of the droves reach on Saturday night the resting places within such a drive of the market as is easily accomplished on Monday morning. At these places, the Lord's Day is too frequently desecrated by these premature negotiations, and the gathering of the droves towards the market proves many times a troublesome annoyance in the sober part of the community in the vicinity of the Great Avenues. The Wild West-style antics of those involved in the cattle trade continued to annoy the sober part of the community, both in the suburbs and in Brighton. Drovers and cattle traders quickly became known for heavy drinking, high-stakes gambling, and occasional crime and violence. That 1841 agricultural report shows what an increasingly temperance-minded community thought of the drovers in their midst. The facilities for intemperance and gambling, which have sometimes existed at Brighton, have been dreadfully prejudicial to the drovers and others who visit there and are obliged to remain there or in the capital for some days, without occupation, for the return of the weight of their cattle. Young men coming from the interior with cattle for sale are often ruined by here being entrapped and laying the foundations of fraud and drunkenness. If there is a place in our community, Brighton is one, where the friends of sobriety should combine their forces in this great cause of order and humanity, and where the banner of total abstinence should throw its broad folds to the breeze. Along with falling victim to the temptation of drink and gambling, drovers could fall victim to real crimes as well. You may be thinking of the cattle rustling we've all seen in westerns, but where is the sense in stealing a herd that you then have to sell when you can simply wait and steal the money that a drover got for selling the herd instead. Cattle trading was a cash business, and that cash attracted criminals. Smith and Bridges tell the story of one unfortunate cowpoke on the way home from the Brighton market. 
Drovers often carried large amounts of money and were sometimes the target of attacks. The most significant of these occurred in Waterville, Maine in 1847. A number of stories circulated about this event, but apparently a local doctor actually murdered a drover for his purse of $1,500. A ballad was later written about this. For the roots of this mini Wild West, we have to go much further back in our nation's history. As Smith and Bridges alluded, cattle drives have been coming to the Boston area since the 1600s, but the livestock trade began to center on Brighton during the Revolutionary War. After the battles at Lexington and Concord in April 1775, militia units from around New England streamed into Cambridge and Roxbury to keep the British regulars trapped in the peninsular town of Boston. This sudden influx of hungry soldiers dramatically increased the demand for food and supplies beyond what local farmers could provide. In the community known then as Little Cambridge, an entrepreneurial family named Winship recognized the opportunity that was at hand. Longtime Brighton-Alston historian William Marchione introduces them. The Winships, who originally hailed from Lexington, settled in Brighton just before the outbreak of the American Revolution. Cambridge, of course, served as the headquarters of the Continental Army in the 1775-1776 period, and General Washington's troops badly needed provisions. Jonathan Winship Sr. and Jonathan Winship II, father and son, responded by putting out a call to the farmers of Middlesex County and other outlying areas to send their cattle to Little Cambridge. As this livestock arrived, the Winships purchased and processed it for the army. The importance of the Winship contribution to the Patriot cause was noted by Willard M. Wallace in his Military History of the Revolution. There were so few hungry soldiers in the siege lines around Boston that winter that one might say it was with food, rather than with troops and arms, that Washington kept the British locked up in the city. The Brighton cattle market continued to prosper after the war. By 1790, Jonathan Winship II had become the largest meatpacker in Massachusetts, putting up some 5,000 barrels of beef a year for foreign markets alone. When Cambridge's town government failed to repair the great bridge that linked Little Cambridge to Harvard Square and points north, and made other decisions that threatened the well-being of the local cattle industry, the residents of Little Cambridge resolved to secede from the parent town. They won legislative approval of separation in 1807, choosing the name Brighton for the new corporate entity. Over the next two decades, the newly independent town of Brighton slowly built up its infrastructure to support the cattle and livestock trade. As Boston grew and other markets served by the Brighton stockyards grew, the facilities to house livestock and the people involved in their trade had to grow as well. Smith and Bridges pick up the tale. On October 8, 1816, the Massachusetts Society for Promoting Agriculture held its first annual cattle show at the market site. By 1818, the shows were successful enough for a hall to be erected at the market on land donated by the Winship family, who were still in control of the market. Soon, a hotel, called the Cattle Fair Hotel, was built and began business at the market square. Behind the hotel, stockyard pens were built stretching parallel to Main Street. These yards, the hotel lobby, and Main Street were the central market, until the hotel was raised in 1850. Some attempt was made in 1831-32 to to hold the sales at the fairgrounds as well as at the Hotel Square, but this was not very successful, and the hotel continued to be a major focus of activity. 
Founded in 1830, the Cattle Fair Hotel Corporation was the second corporation established in Massachusetts. The company was a large landholder in Brighton and owned two assets vital to the cattle trade in New England. The first were the Brighton stockyards themselves. The second was the large hotel, located between today's Market and Leicester Streets, that catered to the farmers, drovers, buyers, and other wheelers and dealers that came to the market. As described by William Marchione, the Cattle Fair Hotel, with its hundred rooms, grand ballroom, and great dining room, was the largest hotel in the Boston suburbs. The hotel's manager in the early 1830s, Zachariah B. Porter, later founded the Porter House Hotel in Cambridge, from which Porter Square and the Porter House Stake derived their names. Bostonians rode out along the Mill Dam Road, now Beacon Street, and Mill Dam Extension, Lower Commonwealth Avenue, to the Cattle Fair to avail themselves of the liquid refreshments available in its giant saloon, which was said to be the largest watering hole in New England. Of course, cattle weren't the only livestock being bought and sold at the Cattle Fair in Brighton. There were also pigs, sheep, and poultry, all of which were also driven to Brighton on foot. Smith and Bridges introduce us to some of these other herds. Driving sheep was similar to driving cattle, although fewer people were needed to do the work. After about a day, sheep moved steadily, stopping to eat by the verge when they wished, then falling into line behind others who had walked along. Sheep droves were larger. 600 to 1,000 were often moved in a drove. Poultry was also sold at Brighton. Killed eviscerated birds, ducks, geese, chicken, and turkeys, were crammed into barrels and covered with salt. These birds were sold in the fall, especially as Thanksgiving became a significant holiday after mid-century. Drovers experimented with droves of live birds. Reports of turkey drives from Vermont and Maine are accurate, although the numbers of animals is unknown. Peter Gilbert of Vermont Public Radio describes how a mid-19th century turkey drive would have worked. Before railroads, the only way to get turkeys from Vermont to market in Boston was to walk them there. And that, throughout much of the 19th century, is exactly what Vermonters did, including Vermonters from the northernmost parts of the state. Townspeople put their birds of a feather together, and accompanied by wagons with camp supplies and tons of feed grain, they escorted as many as 7,000 birds at a time all the way to Boston. Drives of three to 4,000 birds were common in the 1820s and 30s. Historian Charles Morrow Wilson says that about a 1,000 birds was the minimum necessary to make the 150 to 350-mile trek worthwhile. It was a long haul. The flocks could only make 10 to 12 miles a day, and at least one drover was required for each 100 birds. Boys scattered shelled corn feed in front of the birds so they would walk forward, while others herded from behind. Flocks might spread out for more than a mile, ranging in width from a few feet to 50 yards. To protect the birds' feet on such a long hike over rough terrain and November's frozen ground, Vermonters sometimes coated the birds' feet with warm tar. They lost about 10% of the turkeys to forded rivers, foxes, hungry farm families they met en route, and other perils of the journey. Whether they were driving cattle or sheep or even turkeys, drovers who brought their herds to Brighton in the 1830s and 40s were arriving at the peak of the market's popularity. It was an era when local populations were booming, demand for meat was high, and railroads were just beginning to have an impact. Refrigeration, 
which would eventually allow meat to be processed near where it was raised rather than where it was consumed, was still decades in the future. Market Day in Brighton was such a large to-do that it could be nationwide news. Even in the fruitful agricultural region of Kentucky, the Louisville dollar farmer looked to Brighton as a possible model to emulate. The Brighton Cattle Fair. When we were in Boston last summer, we requested a friend to give us an account of the manner of conducting of the cattle fair at Brighton, thinking that perhaps there might be something in it worthy of imitation in our western cities. We have received the following, which will be found interesting. We trust that a fair of this kind will be established in this neighborhood. The 1841 Agricultural Report gives us the lay of the land. The great cattle fair of the state, and indeed of New England, is held at the beautiful village of Brighton, about six miles from Boston, on the Monday of every week. Here, capacious pens are erected for the reception of such livestock as may be brought in, and the drovers and butchers assemble from all directions. The business of selling and buying is principally got through with on Monday, though cattle and other stock, when prices are not satisfactory to the seller, are frequently kept over for a week or fortnight for a better market. With the exception of a small fair at Danvers in Essex County, held occasionally in the fall, I know of no other cattle fair in New England. It must have been an eye-opening experience for a farmer or drover from some far-off rural corner of New England to come into Brighton on market day. Suddenly, they would find themselves in a bustling urban center, one that was free of the puritanical sensibilities of the Brahmin elite and its nearby neighbor, and one that was swollen far beyond its usual population with fellow traders. There were saloons to visit and cards to play, and of course cutthroat wheeling and dealing to engage in to get a fair price for your stock. In an 1841 notebook that he kept while living at the Brook Farm Agrarian Commune in West Roxbury, Nathaniel Hawthorne described his experience at the Brighton Cattle Fair. On arriving at Brighton, we found the village thronged with people, horses, and vehicles. Probably there is no place in New England where the character of an agricultural population may be so well studied. Almost all the farmers within a reasonable distance make it a point, I suppose, to attend Brighton Fair pretty frequently, if not on business, yet as amateurs. Then there are all the cattle people and butchers who supply the Boston market, and dealers from far and near, and every man who has a cow or yoke of oxen, whether to sell or buy, goes to Brighton on Monday. Most of the people were of a bulky make, with much bone and muscle, and some good store of fat, as if they had lived on flesh diet, with mottled faces too, hard and red, like those of persons who adhered to the old fashion of spirit drinking. Great, round-paunched country squires were there, too, sitting under the porch of the tavern, or waddling about, whip in hand, discussing the points of the cattle. There were also gentlemen farmers, neatly, trimly, and fashionably dressed in handsome trousers strapped under their boots. Yeomen, too, in their black or blue Sunday suits, cut by country tailors and awkwardly worn. Others, like myself, had on the blue stuff frocks which they wear in the fields, the most comfortable garments that ever were invented. Country loafers were among the throng, men who looked wistfully at the liquors in the bar and waited for some friend to invite them to drink. Poor, shabby, out-at-elbowed devils. Also, dandies from the city, corseted and buckramed, who had come to see the humors of Brighton Fair. All these, and other varieties of mankind, either thronged the spacious barroom of the hotel, drinking, smoking, talking, bargaining, or walked about among the cattle pens. 
The Louisville dollar farmer describes what those pens would have been like and how the drovers put them to use. You may remember that in coming from Cushing's Garden last summer, we passed through Brighton and I pointed out to you the Cattle Fair Hotel and the pens adjacent there too. This hotel and the pens belong to a company who leased the hotel and grounds and drovers coming in to market their cattle are allowed the use of the pens for the purpose of disposing of their cattle. There is no system about the matter except what is observed at a barber's shop of first come, first served as to the use of the pens. The cattle are generally driven into the immediate neighborhood on Saturday or Sunday, and on Sunday evening or very early on Monday morning, the cattle are placed in the pens where they remain until they are disposed of, which is usually during Monday afternoon. That 1841 agricultural report gives an idea of the scale of a single market day in Brighton. The number of head of cattle of all descriptions brought here frequently exceeds 8,000 on a market day. 5,000 sheep have sometimes been driven there in a single day. And then an 1846 edition of the New England Farmer magazine picks up the tale. The cattle, sheep, and hogs which change hands at the weekly Brighton Fair are scattered in every direction to supply the vast market which is furnished by the thickly populated region within 50 miles of Boston. About 200 head of beef cattle are purchased every week by dealers or cattle brokers from New Bedford, Taunton, and Fall River, whither they are driven to supply the butchers of those places and their neighborhoods. As many more, perhaps, go to Lowell, Salem, Danvers, and other neighborhoods are supplied in the same manner. About 500 are slaughtered weekly in Brighton, or 25,000 a year, for the Boston market. Beef was the main focus of the Brighton Cattle Fair, and one of the staple foods in Boston and throughout New England. It was not, however, the only product up for sale on a typical day in Brighton. That 1841 report describes all the different types of cattle that were offered for sale. The cattle principally consist of young stock for wintering, working oxen, milk cows with their calves, and fat cattle for barreling and for the retail market in the city and vicinity. Then Smith and Bridges described the various fates of these different classifications of bovines after they were sold. Beef cattle were slaughtered for table use. Older, tougher animals were sold for barreling cattle or mess beef. Beef appeared the year around, with a season for barreling cattle running from mid-August to mid-November. Fancy, or Christmas cattle, were sold in December. Farmers divested themselves of excess and surplus animals in the fall. Yearlings, two- and three-year-olds, or young stock, were brought in great numbers to Brighton, where they were sold as stores cattle. These stores cattle were not slaughtered, but were driven to western Massachusetts or to the Connecticut Valley, where they were fed all winter, often stall-fed in fact, and then returned to Brighton for sale and slaughter in the spring. The stores cattle season usually began the last week in August and was finished by Christmas. Working oxen, sold in pairs or yokes, were offered throughout the year. The peak season occurred after the lumbering season was over in Maine, as farmers sought good, strong, well-broken animals for their work. These animals were often resold at Brighton in September and October for work in the lumber woods again. The numbers of oxen tended to diminish after the Civil War, as horses and machinery replaced them, but they were still being auctioned in small numbers into the 20th century. 
Drovers rented pens from the proprietors who were, for a long time, the Winship family. The animals were driven to the central auction site near the hotel, then to the scales, and finally to pens of their purchasers, or to the slaughterhouse. All this was done with relative ease, although contemporary accounts stressed the dust and the noise. Sales, beginning at 9 o'clock, were terminated at noon when a large bell was struck, then commenced again at 1, and were ordinarily finished at 4. The Louisville Dollar Farmer describes how a sale would have been made at the Brighton Market. The butchers from Boston, New Bedford, and the large towns in this vicinity meet the drovers at this hotel and dicker with each other for beef, pork, or mutton in their own way, some selling their cattle by the head, some by gross weight, and some by net weight, and in the latter case, the butcher drives off his cattle after making the price and takes them to his slaughterhouse, which may be 5, 10, or 50 miles distant and, in a day or two, meets the drover at some place agreed upon, generally at some hotel in Boston, and brings with him on a slip of paper the net weight of the cattle and pays the money as agreed upon at Brighton. The drover relying upon the honesty of the butcher for the weight of his cattle, and I am told that it has scarcely, if ever, been known that any dispute or difficulty arises in consequence of this mode of dealing. The 1841 report on Massachusetts agriculture reiterates this downtime that drovers had while waiting to get paid, but casts some doubt on the claim that there were scarcely any disputes or difficulties because of the practice. The drover generally waits for two or three days until he gets the returned weight of his cattle after being slaughtered and receives his money. Not only did this waiting period give a hardworking drover time to be tempted by the sins of drink and gambling, it also gave them an opportunity to be cheated by fraudulent buyers, as the report continues. It is extremely desirable that the system of buying and selling by live weight or on the hoof should be adopted at Brighton. It would be greatly to the advantage of the drovers, both in respect to interest and morals, to be able to finish their business in one day, receive their money on the sale of their cattle, and return immediately to their homes. It would prevent the suspicion of fraud, which now sometimes exists in the returns of weight made by slaughterers, by removing all opportunity for it. I may mention an occurrence which shows the boldness with which these frauds are sometimes committed, and the extraordinary circumstances by which, in many cases, crimes, when deemed most safely covered up, are detected. A farmer, on receiving the returns of the weight of a yoke of oxen, which he had entrusted to a drover for sale, was very much disappointed and dissatisfied. He had no reason to distrust the honor of the drover, and the drover returned the weight of the full number of cattle sold. It seems after the drover had delivered his herd of cattle to the purchaser, the purchaser selected this yoke of cattle and, instead of killing them, sold them at a high price, putting another inferior pair in their stead whose weight on being killed was returned to the drover. In the meantime, the yoke in question which were sold to a farmer broke out of his yard and returned to their first owner, which led to the discovery of the fraud. We call ourselves a Christian community. In Turkey, such rascalities would speedily give the villain an opportunity of carrying his head under his arm. The Brighton Cattle Fair had been founded in the days before railroads, but as it was reaching its peak, the railroads were being built out at the same time. The first railroads were built in Boston in the mid-1830s, and by 1834, 
the Boston and Worcester Railroad had a rail yard in Brighton. In the decades before refrigeration, this simply meant that the market could expand, as more cattle could be brought in from further afield without the delays and expense involved in driving them overland. Still, cattle drives and rail freight happily coexisted for a long time. As described in the New England Farmer in 1846, once rail lines were well established. The cattle are brought from various sections, some of them from a great distance, from Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, and the western counties of this state, western New York, and even Ohio. Many are yet driven in the old way, but many more are transported by railroad. Cattle are now brought by railroad a distance of 200 miles in 24 hours. This distance, if they were driven, could not have been accomplished in less than a fortnight. Smith and Bridges, in their article in the Journal of the Agricultural History Society, describe how the growth of railroads enabled competing cattle markets to spring up in neighboring communities, yet overland cattle drives kept the Brighton cattle markets alive and well for nearly a century. By 1831-33, to the market area had expanded away from the hotel somewhat as the trade grew. When the Fitchburg Railroad was built, a small subsidiary market grew up in Cambridge. Some animals were sold when they left the trains, but most were driven the short distance to Brighton for disposition. In the 1870s, a large Union stockyard was erected in Watertown, and many felt that the Brighton market would come to an end. Increasingly, Sheep were sold on commission lots at Watertown, as were Western cattle. Brighton, however, continued to be the center of the trade as overland driving persisted throughout the 19th century. Apparently, the last land drives occurred at the market about 1910. They describe how, in the end, the railroad was incorporated into the standard business model at the Brighton Cattle Fair allowing it to continue as an important part of the local economy well into the 20th century. Railroads at first took mostly fat cattle, while thinner cattle, store cattle, oxen, and young stock were driven over land. By 1852, more and more cattle moved by rail, however, and the percentage increased steadily. The numbers of railroad cars arriving at Brighton each week from all sources ranged from 170 to 200 by 1860. Some large shippers, such as Lambert Hastings, St. Johnsbury, Vermont, who began as a drover, shifted to the railroad entirely by 1855. He averaged over 15 carloads a week to Boston for the next 15 years. With the road schedules well known, a drover could leave Boston on Sunday, go to Maine or Vermont, purchase cattle, drive them to the depot, return with the drove to Boston, sell the animals, and be ready to leave the next Sunday to do it again. Drovers' cars remained a feature of Boston trains until about 1930. A drove of cattle overland through a town now brought much newspaper comment, as the railroads completely dominated the traffic. Of course, we haven't really touched on the uses for all those cows that were being driven into Brighton in the 19th century. A quick warning, the next few minutes will involve descriptions of the slaughtering and meatpacking industries and related businesses. We'll try not to be too graphic, but if you're sensitive to that sort of thing, you may want to skip forward just a few minutes. 
The number of slaughterhouses and related establishments grew steadily throughout the middle decades of the 19th century. By the 1860s, there were 50 to 60 slaughterhouses scattered around the town of Brighton. The 1841 Agricultural Report starts the accounting for all these slaughterhouses with the barreling operations. Barreling referred to the process of preserving salted meat in barrels for long-term storage. The cattle for barreling are taken at once to the large slaughtering and packing establishments, where they are disposed of accordingly. And fat cattle are likewise purchased for the butchers by the slaughterers, who kill and dress for $1 per head with the customary perquisites, or else purchase and kill on their own account, and supply the marketmen in the city and vicinity with such beef and with such amounts of beef as they may desire. The dollar farmer expands that description, including some of the ancillary businesses that sprang up around the beef industry. The season for packing beef and pork has now commenced, and Brighton Village, on Monday mornings, presents a lively scene. There are several large packing establishments in Cambridge and Brighton where beef and pork are put up for the use of the Navy, for shipment, and for general sale. The same establishments frequently render the tallow, make candles and soap, and sell the bones or ship them to Europe. Near Day's Ropeworks in Roxbury is a perfect Golgotha, where beef is jerked and the bones and heads are piled up like the Egyptian pyramids, waiting for shipment, or, which sometimes happens, to be ground up for manure. Unlike at other major cattle markets in the U.S., at Brighton, the weight of the discarded parts of the cow counted toward the market weight. In other markets, the head, feet, hide, and entrails would be discarded before the resulting carcass was weighed and the farmer was paid. However, in Brighton, those parts were considered a fifth quarter of beef. The slaughterhouse retained the rights to them, and they were sold for industrial uses, as the 1841 Report on Agriculture in Massachusetts details. In Brighton Market, the offal, or perquisites of the slaughterhouse, are the entrails, the feet, the head, a strip from the foreshin, and the blood. The tongue, cheeks, and heart of the bollock go to the butcher. The slaughterer sells the feet and head to the tallow chandler and soap boiler, who extracts the tallow and oil. The claws go to the comb maker. The bones and pith of the horns go to the bone mill for manure, or for the purpose of obtaining animal charcoal, and the blood to the sugar refineries. A thorough system of economy pervades in all of the branches of the business. After over 40 years of stable operations, three momentous changes rocked the Brighton cattle market in 1872 and 73. First, the dozens of slaughterhouses and butchers scattered around the stockyards and across Brighton were consolidated into a single modern facility. Then, the introduction of refrigerated train cars began changing how beef was produced and consumed around the country. And then, finally, the independent town of Brighton was annexed to the rapidly expanding city of Boston. Even with the rise of the railroads and competing cattle markets, Smith and Bridges describe how the Brighton Cattle Fair continued to grow throughout the 1850s and 60s. As the number of animals increased, the auction day was moved to Wednesday, then expanded to Tuesday for wholesale purchases, and finally was moved to Friday. By 1860, however, some sales were being held on every day of the week. In the busiest time in autumn, many butchers met droves outside Brighton to deflect the traffic to other towns and in order to affect sharp price differentiations with their competitors. 
During this period of growth, landowners in Brighton saw another opportunity to turn a profit. Trains and streetcars now allowed people who worked within the city of Boston to make their homes outside. Suburbs from Brookline to Dedham were growing rapidly as these displaced urbanites bought house lots and built country homes close to the transit lines that could carry them to work. Brighton landowners wanted in on the action, but the filth and stench created by the dozens of slaughterhouses in downtown Brighton made attracting suburban home buyers a tough sell. At the same time, state legislators were suddenly preoccupied with the sanitary practices of the meat industry. An 1870 report on Boston area slaughtering said, During the past year, 53,000 beeves, 342,000 sheep, and 144,000 hogs were slaughtered within six miles of Faneuil Hall. While the population within this circle of towns and cities has been every year growing more dense, requiring not only increased supplies of meat, but increased precautions for the maintenance of health. The vacant and waste places where offensive trades established themselves long ago are now being rapidly filled by a busy population whose need of wholesome air is urgent. Practices in themselves objectionable may be permitted where there is plenty of fresh air. The situation in Brighton, where most of the slaughterhouses serving Boston were located, was a clear affront to popular and scientific opinion about the dangers from water and air polluted by decomposing animal offal. Local butchers had taken no steps to dispose of waste matter properly or to dispel offensive odors. The situation was surely leading to disastrous consequences that would inevitably result in lowered resistance to disease and premature death. The attempt of the state board to translate advice into action met with resistance at first. Directives of the legislature had been thwarted by opposition from the butchers. In 1871, however, the board was given the power to enforce its recommendations and to close slaughterhouses which were found to operate in such a way as to endanger the public health. Moving with caution, the state board called a meeting of the Brighton butchers to inform them of the need to improve slaughtering conditions and stressed the hope that they would establish a new abattoir without further legal restraints. All through the year, individual establishments, particularly the largest and most influential, continued to oppose regulation. So in 1872, a new ordinance forced all of the slaughterhouses to consolidate into a single, new, modern, high-tech facility, as Smith and Bridges describe. In 1872, a new abattoir was built at Brighton on the Charles River so that vessels could bring animals direct to the slaughterhouse. The new buildings, four stories high, were able to handle 300 beef cattle each day. After slaughter, the meat was hung for two or three days in a cold room, where temperature was lowered by the installation of a dropped ceiling shielding 15 to 20 tons of ice, through which air was circulated by a series of ducts. In the slaughtering area, hides and offal were dropped through trap doors to cars, which moved on tracks to dispose of their contents. Here was located the rendering house, which conducted its business by steam heat under pressure. Odor was virtually eliminated. In other areas of the building, the parts of the slaughtered animals were carried to their destinations by a series of pulleys and shafts, so the amount of physical work was diminished substantially. The ice for the cool rooms was transferred in the same way. This abattoir remained in use until the 1880s, when new, chemically refrigerated plants were constructed. Just a few months later, another technological advance was introduced into the livestock industry. Though the impact of this one took longer to be felt, 
In the end, it would completely transform the meat business. In March of 1873, refrigerator cars were mentioned for the first time in the market reports, and in the next week, the price of dressed beef began to be quoted regularly in Brighton. That simple sentence from the journal article by Smith and Bridges bellies how much refrigeration changed this business. For decades, the cattle industry had been growing in Texas and on the northern Great Plains, but the cattle were shipped to markets in Chicago or back east to Brighton, Albany, and New York City. Before refrigeration, stock had to be slaughtered and meat had to be packed close to the hungry cities that would consume it. After refrigeration. The model was turned on its head. Suddenly, it made economic sense to slaughter cattle near where they were raised and ship the refrigerated meat backies to be purchased and eaten. Though it would be nearly a century before the Brighton stockyards fully closed, this 1873 technological advance struck their death knell. Back in episode 61, we talked about how Boston grew through the late 19th and early 20th centuries by annexing its neighbors. William Marchione explains how the Brighton cattle yards and the debate around annexation were intertwined. Urbanization was slowed by the large numbers of drovers, cattle dealers, country farmers, and itinerant merchants who poured into the town each week to attend the cattle market. The town contained some fifteen hotels for the accommodation of this transient element: hotels equipped with bars that dispensed as much liquor as the patrons cared to pay for. That tolerated disorderly and drunken behavior, and that furnished a haven for high-stakes gambling. The poor condition of the town's roads, its lack of street lighting, and an almost complete absence of sewers also militated against suburban development. Believing that there was little point in investing the town's resources in roads over which droves of cattle were regularly driven, the town fathers spent very little money on highways. They also declined to invest in sewers, which might tend to undermine the freewheeling dumping practices upon which the slaughterhouse proprietors relied. The transformation of Brighton from an industrial town to commuter suburb was accomplished in three broad steps between 1870 and 1873. First, the town's slaughterhouses were closed down, and its butchers forced into the abattoir, thus opening previously fouled acreage to suburban development. Then a massive public works program was inaugurated with the object of making Brighton more attractive to would-be commuters. In the four years leading up to the annexation vote, Brighton spent some five hundred thousand dollars on improved roads, curbings, sidewalks, sewers, and street lighting. Additional sums were also spent on public facility improvements, including a new public library, a handsome grammar school, and several new firehouses. The impact of this orgy of spending on the town's financing was intentionally staggering. Brighton's income in the four years under consideration totaled only four hundred thirty-eight thousand dollars, but its spending level reached an incredible one point five six million dollars, four times what it received. The difference could be made up only one way: by heavy borrowing. In the eighteen seventy to eighteen seventy-three period, Brighton's town debt increased by eight hundred percent. If Brighton had remained an independent town after 1873, its residents would have been obliged to pay substantially higher taxes. Members of the Brighton business elite, meanwhile, filed the legislation that authorized Brighton's annexation to Boston. In building the town's huge indebtedness, they laid the groundwork for the annexation decision of October 7th, 
allow Boston to annex Brighton, they advised the townspeople, and the metropolis would automatically absorb its potentially crippling debt. After joining the great city of Boston in 1874, the stockyards kept cranking on. They moved to North Beacon in 1884 to open up more land for development and continued there, pretty much where New Balance is today, in a steady state of slow decline until 1967. Smith and Bridges give a sense of how those last decades went. The market itself was a stable force in New England life. The butchers and others associated with the market adjusted to different animals and different sources of supply with little difficulty. The method of preserving meat for the consumer remained relatively the same, speedy salting or pickling, until the coming of refrigeration. Texas cattle marked the beginning of the end for New England stock raisers, and refrigeration struck the death blow. Eventually, those new factors in the market eliminated the market itself, but not until well into the 20th century. In the final decades, the stockyards were plagued by accidents, large and small. There were fires in 1895, 1910, and 1912. After the four-alarm fire in 1910, the Boston Daily Globe headline read, Steers run wild in the streets and impede work of firemen. Large numbers of the cattle, which were released in the effort to drive them away from the burning stockyards, stampeded and ran wildly through the streets of the vicinity, bellowing madly and endangering the lives of the crowds of people in the streets watching the fire. Many of the terror-strucken cattle rushed madly into the flames and were roasted on the hoof. The steers running around the fire endangered the lives of the firemen who were working desperately to extinguish the flames. Cattle probably ran wild in the streets of Brighton all the time when it was Boston's own Wild West, but now that it was a densely developed neighborhood, incidents like this were a problem. And they didn't stop. In 1924, the Globe headline read, Six steers go into the river, rescued from the Charles at Brighton Abattoir. Another animal flees over bridge into Watertown, killed by two rifle shots as he charges police car. Seven steers, just arrived from the West, averaging 1,500 pounds each, made a sensational break for freedom as they were being unloaded from cattle cars on the Brighton Abattoir grounds. Six of the steers took a shortcut to freedom across the Charles River, and their combined weight caused them to crash through the ice. They were nearly drowned, but were finally rescued after 20 minutes' hard work by officers of the Brighton Station of the Metropolitan District Police, assisted by abattoir men and others. The seventh steer dashed along the bank to the further end of the abattoir grounds, crossed North Beacon Street Bridge, and escaped into Watertown, where he was cornered in some bushes and killed by two rifle shots fired by Sergeant Dominic O'Connor of the Metropolitan Police. Until they were forced to start using trucks well into the 20th century, cattle were driven through the streets from the stockyards to the abattoir. Most of the time this was fine, but it occasionally led to what John Wayne might have called a... The Boston police were called in on escaped cattle at least five times between 1936 and 1954. The Division 14 police station in Brighton kept special heavier shot shells in inventory to load their shotguns with when these escapes happened. D-14 referred to the file noting instances where animals were shot as the cowboy files. 
An escape in 1954 led to a lawsuit against the stockyards that was still winding its way through the courts in 1962. In that case, a single cow escaped from an unfenced loading dock. By the time the farmer realized what had happened, the cow had a head start. It made it about a quarter of a mile with the farmer pursuing in his truck before running into a worksite where a Boston Edison substation was being built and badly goring a construction worker. As the lawsuit brought by the worker's widow states, the cow was thereafter pursued by the police and shot. While that case was in process, the stockyards ran into an implacable force more powerful than fire or even cattle stampeding through the city streets. In 1956, the unstoppable force of development in Boston came calling for the Brighton stockyards. That year, the Metropolitan District Commission voted to take most of the remaining land occupied by the stockyards in order to extend Soldiers Field Road and build the exit ramps connecting Soldiers Field to Market Street and Western Avenue. The remainder of the land taken was to be used for industrial development. Farmers opposed the measure. With the Globe reporting, a bill aimed at keeping slaughtering facilities on the area now occupied by firms in the Brighton Abattoir was strongly supported by farmers and farm organizations yesterday. Elimination of the Brighton Abattoir would definitely lead to the elimination of Brighton Stockyards, which is the current price-setting market in New England, the Massachusetts Farm Bureau Federation stated. Their efforts were unsuccessful. In the end, Boston's Wild West came to an end, not with a bang, but with a whimper. A much-reduced stockyard operation limped along in Brighton until 1967, when it closed and moved to Littleton, Massachusetts, becoming the Farmers Live Animal Market Exchange. It is now the last livestock market in the state. Okay, that about wraps it up for this week. To learn more about our weird neighborhood histories, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 124. We'll have links to all the sources we cited in both stories, as well as historic maps and photos to help you understand what happened. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and All Souls, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we'd love to play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. That's one of the best ways to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>